Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Welcome back, one and all, for another episode of the Triple Threat Theater podcast. This is episode number 39, and I'm Ryan Miller. Hey, I'm Joe Daxberger. Hey, Joe Daxberger. Oh. Hey, Ryan Miller. It's another episode divisible by the number three. Oh, thank God. (laughs) Now we can rest. Yes. Well, not until we review a very special trio of movies. Millsy, has there been a trifecta yet so vastly different from each other? Uh, 39 episodes in, I feel like there has to have been, but Mm. these are definitely pretty diverse. (laughs) Indeed. Break it down for the people. Uh, Theme for this episode is Everything's a Remix, and that is a reference to, well, just honestly, media in general these days. (laughs) Everything is ripping off everything. That's just art is just cobbling together inspiration from the artist from many other places these days and all forms of entertainment and and art valid point there are no new ideas (laughs) exactly uh but just because something isn't new doesn't mean it can't be good and that's why i've always said that tropes while it may they may inherently sound like a bad thing are actually a good thing oh and especially in the case of Tropes that maybe not everybody is super familiar with. Tropes that are a little more niche. And who is better at bringing together niche tropes and making something new than Quentin Tarantino? Uh, After the movies I've watched for this episode, I'm going to say no one else is as good as he is. (laughs) So everything's a remix. We are not watching three Quentin Tarantino movies. We are reviewing... Three movies that have been big inspirations for Quentin Tarantino's films. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of these. uh, A lot of different movies that we could have chosen. Uh, I was the one who came up with this theme. I'm not 100% sure how I landed on these three. But uh, the three movies that we're going to be talking about are Rio Bravo from 1959. Band Apart, a.k.a. Band of Outsiders here in the U.S. from 1964, and Lady Snowblood from 1973. Mm-hmm. Films from three different countries. That's something. Three different countries. Uh, pretty tight grouping, 14 years apart. Yeah. From the first one and the last one. I actually didn't realize how close some of them were until I was making my notes for the show. Mm. Mm-hmm. But... uh. Yeah, that Tarantino, he takes in, uh, influence and inspiration from a lot of different places. So. Yeah, I think if you remember back to the last episode, this seeing this again kind of tripped me up for a second. Mm-hmm. So immediately wasn't exactly sure because I remember my first thought being, what the hell is Rio Bravo? <laughs> but then I'd be like, oh, I know Lady Snowblood. I own Lady Snowblood. And then uh, tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't Tarantino's production company called Band Apart? Yes, it is. 
All right. So as soon as I, I put that all together quickly, but I remember, you know, probably just as proof of how wide his, um, you know, his net is cast for his inspirations. You know, I was thrown off because he seemed like so wildly different. But. <laughs> yeah, that they are. And that's the thing that's fascinating about about Tarantino is, mm-hmm. you know, his his movies, especially his earlier stuff, but still his more recent films as well. Um, but films like Pulp Fiction and films like Kill Bill, uh, they feel so fresh and unique. But the funny thing is the elements of them are largely old and not unique. It's just the way that he, you know, hand picks different elements from things mm-hmm. and puts them together. And uh, I actually just before we started recording, found myself watching a video on YouTube that I was telling you about that's. Uh, I forget, like Vogue magazine or something made this video of uh, all of the references in Kill Bill Volume 1. And I watched it and I knew a bunch of them. But gosh, there are just references and, and things that he pulled from so many different places. Sometimes like three of them happening at once, which is really fascinating. That's wild. I do. You got to send me that link probably because, I mean, I feel like I maybe would know a handful. But when it gets down to the nitty gritty, I I'm sure a lot of that would go over my head, but mm-hmm. that's like the exciting part of even like his movies and just, I guess people like him, they're like students of film and like seem like they have seen everything. You yeah. Know, and they can connect all these dots and then pull from everything. It's like, you know, not in my wheelhouse. You know, Kill but, Bill um, is like a very popular, well-known movie, but, you know, speaking of the two parts as one, people love it. It's like exciting and funny and interesting. And brings together, you know, elements of Westerns and of Eastern cultures and, uh, you know, for, I would say, probably the vast majority of people, including myself back when they came out and I first saw them, you know, it does feel like wholly unique and original. And the thing is, you know, there are people like myself who will go on to become, you know, a big, big movie buffs and then search out the things that inspired someone like Quentin Tarantino, if you like his movies enough. And then there's a lot of people who probably just watch his films and enjoy them and move on. But it's like through Tarantino, they're able to experience some of the things that they probably never will. Cause not every average viewer, whether they like Kill Bill or not, is going to go and watch, uh, you know, some old Lee Van Cleef spaghetti westerns or Miko Kaji, you know, samurai films. And mm-hmm. so it's really neat the way that he can bring that stuff together and show it to a new audience who doesn't even probably realize that they're being shown elements of other films. They like a lot of people probably just think, oh, it's it's just Quentin Tarantino. But Quentin right. Tarantino isn't just Quentin Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino is a thousand other movies and different genres mashed together. That's what makes this stuff so interesting, whether, Mm -hmm. whether you know it or not when you're watching them. No valid point. So that was a great episode. So kudos to you on coming up with this (laughs) crazy mix. Yeah. Hell, we could probably do a couple sequels to this episode. Cause like I say, he gets stuff from so many different places without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I like these kind of themes that give us the opportunity to like, you know, it's fun to watch like, you know, uh, three, uh, movies about the internet from the nineties, like we've mm-hmm. done in the past, totally. but at the same time, it's fun to be like, what can we do that connects, you All know, right. uh, a John Wayne Western, a French new wave film mm-hmm. and a Japanese revenge, bloody mess of a movie. Yeah. 
playing fast and loose with the connective tissue here at Triple Threat is a joy for us, I'd say. (laughs) I feel like our motto should just be any excuse to watch movies. Uh, I mean, put it on a T-shirt, right? (laughs) I mean, if it's not that, it's going to be I've seen the best. Now I'm watching the rest. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You love that, don't you? I do. I do. (laughs) We'll put that on the front. We'll put the the other tagline on the back. (laughs) All right, deal. So merch, baby, watch out. <laughs> um, I believe I've mentioned before on this show my wall of shame, which yes. is a list that I made on Letterboxd a while back, and I update from time to time with movies that uh you know, they don't have to be like culturally significant or something, uh-huh. but movies that I feel like I should have watched by now. And uh two of the three movies we're talking about today were on the wall of shame. I had oh. actually seen none of these before, which is always exciting for me doing one of these shows. Same here. But um, in general, I feel like Rio Bravo has always been talked about as one of the great Westerns, uh, if not the great American Westerns or great mm. John Wayne Westerns. Okay. Up there with stuff like The Searchers and True Grit. So I've always been wanting to watch that, just looking for an excuse to, and this was it. Mm-hmm. And Lady Snowblood, uh, had you seen it before? You mentioned you own it. Um, no, I bought it when it came out on Criterion, like quite a few of our friends did, I think. Well, and then... That's what I was going to say, me as well. Like I had bought it, had been wanting to watch it, and just hadn't yet. So again, perfect example of an opportunity to finally knock one of them off the list. Yeah, I don't know how much I've gotten to, into it on the show, but like my formative years was watching like plenty of action, and then I started to get into like Bruce Lee films with my brother, and we'd watch, you know, a few of those, and we started getting into like the old kung fu, like wild action Shaolin versus Wu Tang type stuff. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I can remember thinking, like, I don't even know if I was sure I'd heard of Lady Snowblood when I saw, you know, Criterion adds something once they put a movie out, and it's like, okay, well, there's, there's something to this movie if they're putting it out. Let me see what it's about. And I remember, I'm not even sure what clip I saw, but it was almost like instantaneous, like, yep, gotta have it. So. Yeah. Like a number of things, you know, movies I own, you know damn well yourself that this is just a thing where sometimes you end up with movies, books, comics, whatever, and they sit for a while until mm-hmm. you get around to it. But, you know, it was kind of just, it was in the pile. I knew I had it. Um, oddly enough, it wasn't until I'd watched the other two movies, I was going to pull out my copy of Lady Snowblood that I found the copy of Band Apart that I actually own on oh, really? DVD that hey, I told you before a buddy of mine gave like upgraded his DVDs to Blu-rays for Criterion and mm-hmm. that was one of the 10 or 12 that I had so that's hilarious that was pretty funny actually went through the I won't say trouble but I went to there's only one place to watch Band Apart streaming and it's a Criterion streaming service so yeah, shout out to Criterion Channel. I signed up for the 14-day mm-hmm. free trial to watch Same. Band Apart as well. Yep. And um, God, there's a lot of stuff on there. This Dollar isn't a commercial service. for the Criterion Channel. No, but I mean, I but... love the Criterion collection. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I may have to hang on to that subscription for a couple of months. Because <laughs> that's the thing with, you know, I love to buy movies, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's one of my passions is collecting physical media. And there are literally hundreds of examples of movies that I have bought without ever having seen them. But Criterion 
you know, a little more prestigious of a company, they really put in the work. So I don't begrudge them the fact that their single discs tend to cost 40 bones a piece. But because of that price, there are things that are like considered classics I've always wanted to see that I've hesitated to buy because I'm like, I'd kind of like to see it first just because, Mm -hmm. you know, I've been burned by a movie here or there before. Oh, sure. So this is like the perfect opportunity to be like, oh, uh, Band Apart, a Jean-Luc Godard film. Like he also directed Breathless, which I've always kind of wanted to see and have almost bought a couple times but haven't. So like... Mm. Perfect opportunity for like what like eleven dollars a month or something to just try some right. shit out. Then the next time the Barnes and Noble Criterion Collection fifty percent off sale rolls around, I'll be as well informed as I need to be on whether I need to pick them up or not for the collection. Well, that's how they get you, Mills. Yeah, they do every but, time. Yeah, so that that was very that was very much like me being like, oh look, this is a thing I have that I just was in the collection I didn't even know. So it was it was just funny i laughed at at that point i laughed at myself about that one but <laughs> yeah um, yeah so had lady snowblood was aware of it this is my first john wayne movie i've ever seen really true story wow yeah i did not like grow up or formative years or anything with westerns mm-hmm. i mean i probably like the first western i might have even saw that i actually still love and it probably is you know pretty high up in my list of favorite movies is tombstone and I mean, that came out in the 90s. At some point after that, I saw, I can remember watching like Unforgiven, um, maybe in high school years, maybe even after was when I first watched like the Man With No Name trilogy with friends of the show, Joel and Tony, like mm-hmm. they turned me on to that. So yeah, like it was never, never a lot of Westerns on for me. So I never really... I can't think of any John Wayne movie I've seen. I'm pretty sure this was the first one. Well, surprising. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things. I got my wall of shame. It would be big as well. I think you need to start a wall of shame. I'd be curious to see. I do. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) yes. How about that? I will do that. (laughs) So yeah, real Bravo, not on my radar at all. Uh, This would hands down be my first like French new wave movie with band apart. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, I only knew of in name because of I knew that connection to Tarantino's production company. But mm-hmm. and then yeah, I've got you know I've got a decent amount of uh, karate and samurai type movies from the seventies eighties. So, well, speaking of uh, you know movies we own that we haven't watched, you got that Zatoichi box set. You got to dive I into do. still. I do the Blind Swordsman Zatoichi like. What is it, 26 movies? I think so. It might even be more. Man, you got your work cut out for you. I do. So it's like, that's one of the things, because then I'm going to be, I feel like the whole time I've had that, I just know it's going to be, I'm going to watch one, and then I'm going to tell myself, you have to watch them all in a row or something. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then, then it consumes me, but it's like, this is a good problem to have. <laughs> it's just, it's the starting, you know, it's the starting of the thing. For the next That's 26 like, episodes of Triple Threat Theater, we'll have a bonus <laughs> five-minute review of a Zatoichi film oh, at the end of every episode, yeah. so you can watch them all. I don't hate it. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like stuff like that. It's like whenever if I end up with that Godzilla box set, same thing. Mm, yeah, I got to I gotta crack into that bad boy. <laughs> I've seen quite a few of those, but it would, it would turn into the same thing for me there, too, so. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes, you know, I'm just one of those people, Millsy. I either need like a crushing deadline hanging over my shoulders or like a podcast that forces me to watch things I wouldn't normally watch. <laughs> AKA a crushing deadline. Right. <laughs> so three first time watches for both of us. Indeed. What say we uh, dive into the first one? Oh, yes, please. All right. First up from 1959, we have Rio Bravo. The sun is sinking in the west. The cattle go down to the stream. The red wing settles in her nest. It's time for a cowboy to dream. Purple eyes in the canyon. That's where I long to be with my three good companions. Just my rifle, pony, and me. Gonna hang my sombrero on the limb of a tree coming home, sweetheart darling, just my rifle pony and me. a will in the willow. Sings a sweet melody Riding to Riding to Amarillo Amarillo Just my rifle Pony and me No more cow No more cow To be roping To be roping No more stray No more stray Will I see Round the bend, round the bend, she'll be waiting, she'll be waiting for my rifle pony and me. For my rifle, my pony and me. Uh, I have seen. Probably more Clint Eastwood westerns than I have John Wayne, but I've seen a, a fair few John Waynes mm-hmm. as well. Uh, and again, this was one that had been looming over me for a long time that I'd wanted to see. Uh, had always just heard about how good it was. And um, in addition to this being an inspiration for Quentin Tarantino, uh, the other uh, director who I'm a big fan of, who I also know loves this movie, and the director of this movie, Howard Hawks, is uh, John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. And so mm, okay. Rio Bravo, it technically is a siege film, sort of. <laughs> I expected Ooh. it to be more of a siege film because of everything I'd heard about it, but mm-hmm. it's a little more casual than you'd expect, like a bunch of people like hunkered down somewhere with enemies trying to get in. It's not exactly that, right? but uh, this movie was the main inspiration for John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13 as well. Huh. Down to the fact that if you watch the credits for that movie, uh, John Carpenter edited the film himself, but he used the pseudonym John T. Chance as the editor name for himself. That's funny. Which is John Wayne's character in this movie. Yeah, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Well, good thing it's not a straight siege film, Millsy, because as I painfully became aware, you're not a fan, generally. 
of Siege films. Uh, based on what? Uh, that's what you told me when I showed you the amazing film that I love, Demon Knight. I don't know if you recall. Uh, did I say I don't like Siege films? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because I mean, I like Assault on Precinct Thirteen. Sure, I'm not saying you hate everyone, but I remember you saying like that being a siege film, and that's not you tend, or maybe you tend to have problems with siege films, is what it was. Um, I think just films with people stuck in a single location like that can sometimes be troublesome mm. because, uh, like in like unless it's a movie told in real time and they're being attacked for like two straight hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's these weird downtimes where it's like you want to feel like the pressure is still up because there's enemies outside and you, you want it to feel tense, but it can't be just like high tension action all the time. So there's these weird moments where characters just like sit and have aimless conversations when all I'm thinking <laughs> of, right, as just... a viewer is like, why isn't like, why aren't they doing something? Why is no action being taken <laughs> this right is now? The exact, this is the exact thing we, we talked about, which yeah, I appreciate. I, so I understand exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I wouldn't say that I necessarily dislike siege films but them being uh single location films i think is a it can it can cause problems depending oh. on the film but, but again i like assault on precinct 13 i think that one does right, a good correct. job i think demon knight didn't wasn't as tight a film as assault on you. precinct 13 i'll say that fair, fair enough but yeah so where this one's concerned um yeah this is not that yeah, basic premise of this film is that uh, John Wayne is the sheriff in a small town, and uh, there is a criminal by the name of what was his name? Bur- uh, Burdett, Joe, Joe Burdett, Joe, yeah, Joe, Joe Burdett. Burdett. Yep, yep. Uh, so Joe Burdett is just like a outlaw jerkwad who just you know kills whoever he wants and never worries about the consequences because his brother Nathan Burdett is like a corrupt landowner and he's got like the money and the resources to always get him out of trouble. Joe so, Burdett is a right bastard in this movie. Yeah. It's funny how little he's actually in it because most of the time he's oh, in totally. a jail cell. Yeah. But he's just a smug mother. <laughs> yeah. Movie. Because he, he knows that he has this older brother who will yeah. always come to his rescue. And I'll say, I'll say Millsy, during this movie, I was, I was like, will Stumpy just put a couple rounds in this guy already? I want him dead. I hate Joe Burdett. Yeah, the Burdett brothers, not good people. (laughs) But the film opens with Joe Burdett just murdering somebody out and out in uh, John Wayne's town. And then uh, John Wayne and local drunk, who was formerly a pretty good gunman, Mm -hmm. called The Dude, who is Mm -hmm. played by Dean Martin, they capture him, they put him in jail, and they contact the uh, U.S. Marshals to come and get him so that he can stand trial for what he's done. And essentially, his, uh, Joe Burdett's older brother has paid a bunch of people to like go and try and get him out. So you basically have like three dudes, John Wayne, Dean Martin's character, and an old man with a limp named Stumpy. The best. As the three people keeping... You know, people on the Burdett's payroll from getting in and mm-hmm. getting the brother out. So it's it is a siege film, but it's not again just like people in the prison the whole time. There's a lot of like wandering around the town and like it, there's a point towards the end of the movie where John Wayne gets it in his head. He's like, you know what? We should just hunker down in the police station or in the in the jail. <laughs> like, and as they're mm-hmm. pre- preparing to do it, that's when everything kind of falls apart. So, right, it is a siege film, but it's not a siege film. 
Yeah. I'll back you up on that. That element is in there. Mm-hmm. So, hell, uh, as your first uh, John Wayne Western, what did you think of Rio Bravo? A couple things right off the bat. Uh, this is not our oldest movie. I believe Seven Seal is still older than this. I believe that was 57. This was 59. Mm-hmm. So my my movie watching from the 50s is very low. <laughs> so I was like, kind of like going into this before it even started. I was like, I was, I was like, I just don't know quite know what to expect. I have an idea of like what this is going to look like, but like, how does it play out? And then I saw that it was two and a half hours long. I said, God damn, I didn't realize they would even make movies that long back then. I feel like a lot of old movies were significantly longer than we think. Like, there seems to be a trend these days with, like, Hollywood blockbusters that are, like, two and a half hours long, which feels excessive. Mm -hmm. But I feel like when you go back into the past, it was common for movies to be, like, two and a half, three hours long at a certain period. And this is, is like, a slight uh, sidetrack here, but at at this age, at this point in the game, with the amount of movies I watch, just for fun and for the show, there is, like, a great, great joy in like putting a movie on and finding out that its runtime is 90 minutes ish. <laughs> yep. You know, just cause it gives you more time for other things, more movies, whatever. So not that I like frown upon long movies at all, but it is just like, I get, you know, I feel it that it's going to be like, just not as, I don't know, not as like, I'm not gonna say not as good, but it's just like, there's a kind of a, you know, I kind of get a little down, like, damn, this movie's long. And then I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm just watching a movie here. So what's, you know, what's the difference? But mm-hmm. so that was just like an initial thought. I was like, this one's old and it's long. How's this going to play out? I'd say for my first John Wayne movie, um, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Okay. I thought it's kind of like lighthearted a little bit throughout. You know, it's crazy with one thing I noticed was the music where it feels like there's movies of this time or just this one just felt like there's an orchestra playing with the movie the whole time. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not like movie score like we think of 60 whatever years later, you know, movie scores were a little more generic back then. I feel yeah. it was less about let's put a stamp on like the sound and style of this movie mm-hmm. and more. Well, this is a upbeat scene, so let's just have it sound like uh, carnival circus music. <laughs> right. right. So that being said, so you know, I was like noticing these things. Actually, you know, I like John Wayne. You know, I thought I thought he was fun. You know, Stumpy was like if you just picture any like old prospector <laughs> trope, it's Stumpy. He for is sure. like. This has to be the guy that they based every old prospector on has after be, him. Right? I mean, it looks, look, feel right like down to his voice. He talks like this. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, that, that's a real limp. I mean, this guy like fell down a ravine or something <laughs> because that's like, you're not faking that limp. Well, I'm, I'm it sure was it was fake. <laughs> it's funny you even bring that up because I was reading about it and the actor, uh, Walter Brennan, who played the character, said that uh, people after this movie would uh-huh. see him and be surprised that he didn't have a real limp <laughs> because on. he was apparently that convincing to people. Dude, it was the crazy. Like, if you think... So, you're Millsy. Millsy, you're in Hollywood. You're hired. Your character has a limp. I mean, I would say 99 out of 100 times an actor is never going to do what he does in this movie. That limp is crazy. <laughs> Which, to what I was sure, like, he really fell off a wagon. 
<laughs> well, he just or, has that look of like, you know, <laughs> just time beaten old man. <laughs> this guy's a great actor because, I mean, that's commitment to have that crazy of a limp. Mm-hmm. It's just so like, funny you bring that up because like oh I God, read I that as like a passing thing <laughs> online and I didn't bother writing it down because I was like, ah, oh, that's not like that important of a detail. Dude, but. There's no way. I was like, there's no way. He's got to have that crazy limp because like, why would, why would you act it out like that? It looks like he's in pain. <laughs> but no, he's just selling the role. I mean, like, yeah. I somehow love Stumpy even more now, Milsey. Stumpy's a great character. Yeah. So, um... It's it's long. If it like feels long, I don't know if it like do you even cut anything out? I don't even know. I'm not even ready to go down that road. But did you feel the length? Like did you feel like it was too long, or whether whether or not you have an idea of which um, they should lose? Eh? Maybe. Yeah, a little bit. See this? Like I I saw that it was two and a half hours long, and mm-hmm. I I get the same feeling in general as you. And like it's not like dread. Like I'm about to watch yeah. a long movie or something. But that feeling of like, all right, well I'm in for a, the long haul kind right. of when you pop it in. Uh-huh. But gosh, I don't know. Five minutes into this movie, I was like so into it that I was just like along for the ride. Like never felt the length. It actually it wrapped up faster in the end than I thought because they had been talking about how it was going to be like X number of days before the marshal could get there. And as I mentioned a little while ago, it's not until there's like four days left when they finally decide, okay, let's get some supplies and we'll just lock ourselves in the jail. And then, uh, it's like the next day the big climax happens and the movie doesn't even wait for the marshal to get there. And it felt like it wrapped up quickly to me actually at some point. All right. I mean, yeah, not like a detrimental thing. I was just like, I was like, you know, cause there's a lot of like scene changes. It feels like there's like a lot about, like you said, it's not just in the, it's not just in the jail. So like they're back to the hotel, they're in the jail, they're bouncing around, you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. not that it was bad or anything. It's just like, you know, I could have, I, once the climax was coming, I was like, still just feeling just in general, like, where's this going? And I'm like, we're just ready for this to wrap up because I want to see what comes of it. But Yeah, I mean, certainly could you could say it's it's as long as it needed to be. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it could have been shorter. It's the kind of thing where, like, yeah. again, I feel like I'm more inclined towards the spaghetti Western variety of Westerns where it's, like, more crazy action and violence. Mm-hmm. And in those kind of movies, you usually are focusing on a character like the man with the na- uh, no name or Django or someone who's just like a drifter who rolls into town, takes care of business, and then is out of there. Whereas typically American Westerns, for the most part, uh, films that star John Wayne happen to be about like the sheriff or the lawman. And then there's got to be like a love interest, which a lot of spaghetti uh-huh. Westerns do not take time for at all. So... This does feel like much more of a Hollywood like that like that character of An- uh, Feathers that Angie Dickinson plays in this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really liked her and I found her like yeah. entertaining to watch and and affable and fun, but to be completely honest, you could have dropped her entirely from the movie and it wouldn't have hurt anything like John Wayne, 51-year-old John Wayne at the time when they filmed this having like a budding romance with a 26-year-old Angie yeah. Dickinson. Did not need to be in the movie. Yeah, because there's there's no denying that, like, we when I'm watching, I'm like, he's 30 years older than her, without <laughs> even knowing when either of them were born. I was like... Yeah. And he, he even plays it like he's kind of like a father figure, almost. Because it's like, she's like, he's like not going with her advances or anything, you mm-hmm. know? So... I would he's like the straight-laced old 
like yeah. guy and she's the young free-spirited woman on the run kind of thing. Yeah. I would back you up. Yeah, I mean it would certainly cut all our runtime So it's like I I acknowledge like for the plot of the film that was not necessary. Uh her entire part of the movie which probably could have cut like 30 to 45 minutes from the film. But that said, I'm not saying that I would want it cut out just oh, because same here. I don't know, it's like all those aside bits where it's like they're just chilling and doing whatever with like goofy fun like screwball stuff in the hotel. Yeah. I, I like all that stuff. I don't know. Yeah. It's just I I do too. I mean, I like this movie more with her in it, I think. Mhm. So, yeah, I back you up on that. But yeah, she was great. Dean Martin is a guy who I know more just from uh, his reputation than anything. Like, you know, he's one of these, he was part of the Rat Pack, and he was part of uh, the comedy duo with... Uh, Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Jerry Lewis. Martin and Lewis. Fucking famous classic comedian. But this is what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not, I'm not as, I'm not as familiar with him because he was like this previous era. He's like a crooner. Uh, I feel like acting was like his acting, like in dramatic roles was like his third most important thing about his fame and his career. Mm-hmm. Right down to the fact that uh, apparently he seemed like an odd casting choice for this role at the time uh, from what I was reading, but he was really good. Uh, I like yeah, him. Yeah, this this is maybe him. the only thing I've seen with him aside from the original Ocean's Eleven. I would say this is the only thing I've seen him in. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen the original Ocean's Eleven, so. Oh. It's uh, got a much darker ending than the the remake. Oh, <laughs> Just be prepared if you ever watch it. <laughs> oh, well, Bill Z, let me grab a piece of paper <laughs> and a pencil. <laughs> and uh, uh, the other uh, big name in this is uh, Ricky Nelson, who, again, okay. known more as a musician than anything. That's Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, was a, re- a very popular recording artist, was like a teen heartthrob. This was an early film role for him, but he grew up being on um, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, which was a sitcom starring real-life family, uh, Ozzie Nelson, Harriet Nelson... And their two sons, one of whom is Ricky Nelson, and it was like a comedy show where they would perform music, which is a weird thing that used to exist that doesn't really anymore, where it's like, hey, here's a talented family who all know instruments and can sing. Let's just make a TV show about them, and everyone will tune in every week. Man, how things have changed, Mills. I know. Yeah, so that's like your core cast along with uh, Walter Brennan, who plays Stumpy. And uh, I don't know, interesting kind of varied cast. Mm-hmm. I I liked all of them. I like. I was a little surprised since Ricky Nelson is uh, like the third build, and if you watch the trailer for the movie, he's like in the trailer, like talking to the audience. Uh, I mm. was a little surprised that he wasn't in it more. He doesn't really play an important role until kind of the last act, because the whole movie he's kind of avoiding getting into the the trouble that uh, John Wayne's character is mixed up in. But yeah, for sure. One thing I want to mention. I'm curious if you feel the same way, but maybe it's just a sign of the times, but it's very like, I don't know if it's the directing style or the cinematography, but just feels like very like point and shoot. Like it's nothing. I mean, I feel like most, most of it's like a mid shot of, of 
people interacting, talking, whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's something um, else kind of funny that I read. And I don't know if this is true. This is just something I read online that uh, there are only five close-ups in the entire film. I was going to say, before you said that, I would have said, is there a close-up in this movie? Because I'm not entirely sure I saw it. Yeah, apparently all the close-ups are of, like, things happening, not of, like, people's faces. Like, uh, mm. uh, there's a close-up shot of uh, Dean Martin's hands shaking while he's trying to roll a cigarette. Is like, one of the okay. five right. close-ups no, in the entire that. film, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very, like dolly shots like mid-range dolly shots are like almost the entire movie mm-hmm. it's something i noticed i mean it was it's not the like most exciting cinematography for sure i mean but. that's something else that is a stark difference between american westerns and the typical spaghetti western with like extreme close-ups on the eyes and the hands mm-hmm. like cocking guns and stuff like that sure this is just meat and potatoes old school hollywood western yeah. filmmaking right like that's not really a thought it's just like capturing the shot not yeah so this film, by the way, directed by Howard Hawks, uh, known for such films as His Girl Friday, Sergeant York, The Big Sleep, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and uh, perhaps most well-known to some people as the producer of The Thing from Another World, which was oh. then remade fantastically by John Carpenter again in the right. 80s with Kurt right. Russell. Yep, yep. Uh, what do you think of the uh, final shootout? Again, it came as a little surprise to me that it uh, happened so quick. And because I had it in my head that the movie was a siege film, I really thought it was going to, like the final action was going to take place at the jail. But it actually just takes place out in kind of a dust patch between an old rundown house and a barn. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But um, I thought it was pretty cool when they start chucking dynamite and shooting at it. I mean, Stumpy's got an arm on him. (laughs) Yeah. For damn sure. I thought it was a cool scene where basically the bad guys have captured uh, the dude, Dean Martin's mm-hmm. character. And uh, so they're like doing an exchange with uh, John Wayne releasing Joe Burdett. So he like releases him and tells him to walk slow. And then the bad guys let Dean Martin go and they're walking slow. And I'm sitting there thinking like, okay, this is going to pop off any minute. How's it going to happen? And I love as Dean Martin passes Joe Burdett, he just like tackles him out of the way yeah. behind a wall. Yeah. And then the shootout starts. Yeah, that was pretty good. Throw him a gun. Mm-hmm. Everybody starts shooting. Stumpy's chucking dynamite. <laughs> Stumpy almost gets blown up because he's standing near a wagon full of dynamite. Yeah. But that's a great moment when like, so the bad guys are all in the house and a whole bunch of them run out. And uh, Ricky Nelson and John Wayne managed to take out a few of them, but a few get away. And John Wayne and and Ricky are yelling about how, uh, you know, oh, they're going to get around behind us. And the next thing you know, there's Stumpy and blasts the guys who got away with a shotgun. <laughs> it's a great moment. Oh, yeah. Old Stumpy. <laughs> they're like, oh, Stumpy's here. Who's going to show up next? And then Ricky Nelson's <laughs> like, maybe that broad with another flower pot through the window. Oh, right, right. Which actually, I liked that bit where... There's guys out, it's early in the movie, there's guys out in the streets. Ricky Delza tells her, like, as soon as I get out on this porch, throw that pot through a window. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then it happens, and I was like, man, that worked pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. good. That was, like, our first opportunity to see uh, Ricky Nelson, who's, like, apparently, like, a really good gunslinger. We keep hearing about him, but that was our first mm-hmm. opportunity to really see him in action. Yep. That was pretty good. Uh, just, I think... Again, in a spaghetti western, I think you're primarily there for 
the action and the violence and wrapping up the plot and something that this film has, which could be perceived as like padding out the runtime is a lot more character development. And the characters may be kind of cookie cutter, like, you know, a drunk is just a, a bumbling drunk. And uh, Mm -hmm. the old man is just like a limping kooky old man. And Mm -hmm. the one female character in the movie that has any lines is like, this like rebellious woman who wants to go her own way. But uh, I don't know. Spending time with all those characters was fun. I really liked uh, what's his name? The hotel owner, Carlos. Yep. I thought he was a lot of fun and just like Mm -hmm. brought a lot of life to the scenes that he was in. Yeah. Uh, Fun fact about him. He is the real life grandfather of Clifton Collins Jr. Oh, I know him. And uh, I don't watch Westworld, but Clifton Collins Jr. is on Westworld, and apparently on that show, because it's a Western show, he wears his grandfather's gun belt from some of the movies that he was in on that show. Oh, that's cool. I thought that was pretty cool. cool. Yeah, totally. And another little piece of trivia about, uh, his name's Pedro Gonzalez Gonzalez, the guy that plays Carlos. Um, Mm -hmm. His final acting role was in a Stuart Gordon film. Oh, your man. Uh, the Wonderful Ice Cream Suit in 1998. <laughs> okay. Which we won't get into The Wonderful Ice Cream Suit. It sounds oh, no? ridiculous, but uh, we'll just let the title tease you for now. You can you can write that down for a future list if yeah. you're not already. I'm sure you are. Too, too late. <laughs> I don't know. All in all, I don't know if this is like one of my favorite Westerns of all time. Um, mm-hmm. like, like I say, it has a lot of... It gets a lot of praise. It was actually just in 2014 selected for preservation by the National Film Registry. Okay. Uh, it's definitely very highly regarded. But, yeah, I don't know. It's I do like a good Western. Mm-hmm. And there's a part of me that would like to see more Westerns made nowadays. But you see shit like the remake of The Magnificent Seven. And it's just like, maybe we're better off just watching the classics back when people actually mm-hmm. gave a damn about Westerns. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. This type of movie puts me in a nice, comfortable place, and I just like watching. You know, the good guys be good guys, and the bad guys be bad guys. And yeah, I could see that. I mean, I like some modern westerns myself. I know what you mean, where it's you know something like that. Magnificent Seven is more of the straight Hollywood kind of version of. It that. just feels like every western that's being made today is just a remake of a beloved classic like Magnificent Seven or True Grit or uh, um, 310 to Yuma. Like, yeah, the magnet, the new Magnificent Seven with Chris Pratt was fucking terrible. Yeah. But like those other two, they're good movies. But, you yeah. know, True Grit was already a good movie before the Coen brothers came along. <laughs> sure. I mean, I really like 310 to Yuma. Mm hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. I mean, they, you know, they go back to the well. Who knows if they're trying to, you know, connect to the people that's that older that have seen the originals, and that's what's going to make them come out is knowing it's a remake versus something new. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, I especially with me, I'd say there's plenty of uh, opportunity to watch old westerns because my, you know, I've got such a big gap there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty that I haven't seen as well. I mean that westerns were once upon a time like you know you had your comedies and you had your dramas and you had your romance movies and then your action films were primarily westerns once upon a time mm-hmm. in hollywood totally uh, nowadays it's superheroes so yeah well, that's a good point yeah um a couple of little other fun tidbits about this one really quick uh in the beginning of the movie the cowboy that uh, joe burdett 
murders in the saloon that ends up mm-hmm. getting him arrested by uh, John Wayne. Mm-hmm. Played by none other than Kurt Russell's father, Bing Russell. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> Uh, he doesn't have any lines. That's something we didn't mention is that uh, the opening sequence of this movie for like four or five straight minutes has no dialogue. That's true. Which I thought was really cool. It's like a really kind of weird, mysterious opening because, you know, there's nobody talking. You're not getting any exposition right off the bat. And it's just like Dean Martin wants a drink and then uh-huh. they fuck with him and someone gets shot and then John Wayne gets clubbed in the head and they follow him yeah. to another bar and... Uh, it was pretty good intense, though. I thought that was a pretty cool sequence. Yeah, it, it, it start, for as long as the movie is, too, it starts right off. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they waste no time getting into it. Yeah. I feel like movies like this from this time period begin very quickly and end very quickly. It's just the middle that could potentially be a yeah, little saggy. Yeah. I say that's, that's fitting here for me. Mm-hmm. Howard Hawks originally wanted Frank Sinatra for the Dean Martin role and Elvis Presley for the Ricky Nelson role. Oh, okay. Uh, apparently, uh, Elvis was going to cost too much, so that's why they went with Ricky Nelson instead. Mm. Here's something I thought was interesting. is I There's a lot more that I could have read about this. Uh, I don't know a whole lot about the... Uh, the circumstance. I know there's been a couple of movies made about it, but uh, you're familiar with the whole Red Scare blacklisting Cold War thing in Hollywood? Can't say I am, no. Well, there was a time period when uh, everybody was afraid that everybody around them was a communist in disguise. Okay. And so within Hollywood, uh, there was a time where if a filmmaker, a director, screenwriter, or even an actor was outed as a communist, then they could be essentially blacklisted from the industry. And uh, I can't tell you the specifics, but there's a couple of famous instances of this where like noteworthy, like screenwriters were blacklisted for uh, just, you know, having maybe one time attended like a communist meeting or something out of curiosity or whatever. And then it's like, they just never work again because that was the, just kind of the, the politics at the time. Mm-hmm. And so there was another film called High Noon, which I haven't seen, but it stars Gary Cooper. And uh, apparently in that film, Gary Cooper plays a sheriff who in dire straits goes and asks for the help of, I guess, just other townspeople or something. And there has to be more to it than this, but that's like the the vague thing that I read everywhere. And apparently... Uh, this movie, Rio Bravo, was made by John Wayne and Howard Hawks as a response to that film because they thought that it had communist overtones of, huh. like, somebody, like, basically going and asking the community and everybody pitching in to help, like, being a communist act. And so that's why uh, John Wayne's character in this is so so staunchly against getting help from anybody, like, asking anybody for help. Like, wow. uh, when... His friend, uh, the Pat Wheeler character who rides into town with Ricky Nelson is like, why don't you ask the kid for help? He doesn't want to do it. And like Pat has to go ask him for help. And Mm. um, like that's a thing in the movie that he keeps turning people down. And everyone's always saying like, oh, well, you've got a, you know, you've got all these bad guys coming for you. You could use some more help. And he's like, I don't want to get anybody else like tied up in it. And so apparently that was like directly related to like the communist scare at the time. 
and then Gary Cooper, well, because apparently John Wayne was very on board with the whole blacklisting thing and had like a line drawn in the sand, like very black and white view of the matter. Mm-hmm. Whereas Gary Cooper was more in that gray area. And after seeing uh, the movie Rio Bravo, Gary Cooper said it was so phony, nobody believes in it. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Just a weird, like, there's a lot more there that I could dive into, but I thought that that was pretty fascinating. That's. And, uh. I need to dig in that further myself. Yeah. I, there's been a couple of movies made about, like, that time period in Hollywood. Um, the one other thing I thought was kind of interesting about this movie is that it was such a success that, uh, Howard Hawks had the same screenwriter basically rework the script and then they remade it. Uh, about eight years later, essentially remade it and called it El Dorado, once again starring John Wayne, this time with uh, James Caan and Robert Mitchum instead of Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin. Wow, and that then is random. That movie performed so well that they did it again. <laughs> they like rewrote the script a little bit and remade it a third time as Rio Lobo in 1970. Damn. So there's essentially three versions of this same movie with John Wayne. <laughs> All right, so we got a... I mean, we missed an opportunity for that trifecta, but we'll have to like make some other stuff here. I got a question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, we'll have to table this for off the air, but we got to figure out a trifecta so we can watch that John Wayne as uh, Genghis Khan movie. Oh, The Conqueror. Mm. Yes, I mean, three movies with horribly miscast leads. I'm sure we can figure <laughs> that out. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> And one other thing before we move on from this one, there's there's so much trivia out there about this movie because it's so popular. One thing that I thought was really interesting is this movie was written by two writers, Jules Firthman and Lee Brackett. And uh, I didn't know this at the time when I was reading about it. And apparently Howard Hawks didn't know it. He was surprised when he finally met Lee Brackett to learn that she was a woman. Okay. And uh, she was mainly known as a science fiction writer, not for films, but wrote like a lot of short science fiction stories. Uh, she went on to write films such as The Big Sleep and The Long Goodbye and all three versions of Rio Bravo we just talked about. Uh, the final thing she worked on before her death in 1978 is she wrote an early draft of The Empire Strikes Back. What? Yeah. Uh, a, I forget what movie it was. Um that George Lucas had seen that she wrote and he actually requested for her to write a treatment for Empire Strikes Back. So he gave her, uh, like probably in 1977 or 1978, gave her like an outline for the film and she wrote a draft and basically handed it over. And then before the movie could get made, she ended up dying. But, um, I, from what I read, not a whole lot of her version remains and uh, George Lucas wasn't the biggest fan of it. So he and a couple other people rewrote it. But uh, I just thought that was fascinating that the a, one of the most beloved American Westerns of all time with, you know, macho man's man, John Wayne was co-written by a woman, but also that she was a science fiction writer who had a hand in making the empire strikes back. It's full of trivia. Just fascinating. I I thought totally, but, uh, Nice. So, as per the the uh, Quentin Tarantino connection, mm-hmm. <laughs> Tarantino has been quoted as saying that before he enters into a relationship with a girl, he always shows her this film, Rio Bravo, and if she doesn't like it, there is no relationship. Wow. <laughs> 
And he is also an advocate of what he calls the hangout movie, which is a term he coined to describe Jackie Brown. And he considers Rio Bravo because of its casual tone and like core group of main characters who are just like buddies. Mm -hmm. Uh, He considers this to be the ultimate hangout movie. Oh, okay. And so there's some of your Tarantino connections. I like it. I like it. How about that scene where uh, Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin and Stumpy sing that song when they're just yeah. hanging out in the jail cell. Yeah. Yeah. My rifle, yeah, my pony and me. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. I already forgot about it. God damn. You're right. Apparently Amazing. Howard Hawks, when he like ended up with, because apparently the guy who played Stumpy, Walter Brennan, even though he, as I said, he talks like this in the movie. He, uh, he was a recording artist as well, along with the other two. And when yes. he realized that he had three people in the movie who were all recording artists he specifically like had them write in a scene where they could sing yes and wow. it Genius. feels a little oddly out of place but uh i i really like that moment it's a it's a yeah, good song i mean like i said before the tone of this is like a little light and airy a mm-hmm. little so it works yeah yeah i got no problem with that i thought that was pretty fun mm-hmm. all right here here uh let's move on because i have a you know, a mile long list of other trivia that I could read, but we have two other okay. to talk yeah, about. Yeah, I mean. All right. So uh, from 1964, our next film is Band Apart, a.k.a. Band of Outsiders. J'en ai tant vu qui s'en allèrent, il ne demandait que du feu. Il se contentait de si peu, qu'ils avaient si peu de colère. J'entends leur pas, j'entends leur voix qui disent des choses banales Comme on en lit sur le journal, comme on en dit le soir, je sois Ce qu'on fait de vous, hommes, femmes Vos pierres tendres, tôt usées Et vos apparences brisées Vos regards démarrachent l'âme Les choses vont comme elles vont, de temps en temps la terre tremble. Le malheur au malheur ressemble, il est profond, profond, profond. Vous voudriez au ciel bleu croire, je le connais ce sentiment. J'y crois aussi moi par moment, comme la louette au miroir. J'y crois parfois, je vous l'avoue. À n'en pas croire mes oreilles Ah, je suis bien votre pareil Ah, je suis bien pareil à vous Written and directed by Jean-Luc Godard, who is a name I had heard a thousand times. Didn't really know much about the guy. This, you mentioned earlier this was your first French New Wave film, and it very well may be mine as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, again, j- along with the Jean-Luc Godard's name, I've heard the term French New Wave a thousand times yeah, and totally, only ever had totally. a vague understanding of what it meant. Right. I st- I won't be, able, I'm not going to be even try to say I know what it means now, but I will always associate it with this movie now mm-hmm. going forward. I mean, again, I'm sure it's much more involved and complicated than this, and I'm sure there have been entire books written about it, and I'm going to sum it up in like two sentences. But from what I read, basically Godard and a bunch of other French New Wave filmmakers were film critics back before Mm -hmm. they became filmmakers. 
and they used to criticize mainstream French cinema's quote-unquote tradition of quality, substituting, you know, innovation and experimentation for established conventions that just make, like, satisfying pictures. Essentially, <laughs> they're saying, like, uh, they don't like mainstream cinema because it's boring. Mm. Okay. And so the French New Wave was, while it is probably much more complicated than this, mm-hmm. essentially the French New Wave was making unconventional movies. Okay. So stuff with stuff within this that I could, you know, recognize as probably being a part of it would be the random narration, which is actually by the director every now and then, which okay, okay. feels like it comes out of nowhere several times in the movie and makes me feel like I'm reading a book instead of watching a film because it's just like mm. describing what's happening. Mm-hmm. Or the scene where the characters talk about having a moment of silence and then literally all the sound in the movie cuts out for like 30 seconds or something. Yeah. Which felt like a Tarantino thing. Oh, yeah. (laughs) For sure. And it's, you know, Tarantino, while he obviously loves, you know, mainstream cinema and exploitation films and stuff that isn't very, quote unquote, artful, it's almost like he sees the art in that kind of stuff. And then Mm -hmm. he uses it again to turn into things like like Kill Bill and stuff that will, you know, it's not necessarily mainstream it's like mainstream subject matter like revenge and samurais and stuff like that but right using film language that's not mainstream and that you know it's like he tricks mainstream audiences into watching his films because oh look it's a western or oh look it's a war film but then he peppers in these unusual things that would typically only be found in unconventional French New Wave style movies. And Mm -hmm. I guess that's why a film like this is important to him and his growth as a film fan and a filmmaker. Right. Something that's pretty alien to me because there were parts of this movie where I was like, this is very strange. Why is this happening? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You know, for for me, it was because I watched in order of how we're reviewing. Mm -hmm. So I did watch Real Bravo first, then this, then Lady Snowblood. And I did say, I mean, like basically three nights in a row is how I did it. So by like night two, as soon, I mean, this, I don't remember the exact opening shot of this, but, you know, pretty quickly they have that like in, in the car shot of the camera, like showing out from the windshield. Mm -hmm. And it was like, for me, it was, it felt like a breath of fresh air after Rio Bravo just with like, oh, okay. I was like, you know. Here's a, here's a different camera shot than just the <laughs> the, the mid dolly arrangements. So I was like, it's funny watching Rio Bravo, and maybe it's just because I've seen more of those kind of westerns. But it never occurred to me that there was like something unusual, or you know, unusual in how bland the filmmaking mm-hmm. was in that movie. Like, yeah, it never once occurred to me. That's why I was so surprised when I read that trivia about there only being five close ups. I mean, going the, I'm still like, that sounds like a lot that I don't think it was that many (laughs) going the other way, as you're mentioning in a movie like this, there's like, so there's so many like different and kind of unusual camera angles. Oh, totally. You totally like, whereas in real Bravo, I didn't feel the absence of that stuff. And this one, you definitely notice the inclusion of it. Yeah. So I mean, I think like, uh, results may vary depending, but I noticed it big time with this one. Mm hmm. So that was one of the main things that uh, 
jumped out to me. I found this movie like uh, uh kind of like aloof, you know? It's not <laughs> yeah. not exactly goofy, but aloof is like the best way I could put it. But then it's weird cuz it's it, there's like there's definitely moments throughout that you know, it it the the tension will ramp up or like a character will do something that's like pretty harsh or, mm-hmm. you know, pretty firm and it's like it's like I was all about like the juxtaposition of these two things throughout this movie for me. So I, don't know, I thought it was pretty interesting. I'll say I enjoyed this one too for being so completely different. Yeah, but for being aloof and like and quirky too. There was a lot of quirks to this. Movie, oh yeah, but I mean I I enjoyed it. So man, it's like I you may not be putting it in a very academic way, but I know exactly what you're talking about because like. The not just the characters, but the film itself and, you know, not the pacing, but like how it just jumps from scene to scene with like very little Mm -hmm. explanation for why anything is happening. It felt kind of flighty. But then at the same time, the characters like in scenes that could honestly probably just be viewed as like, here's some people just like walking down the street or riding around in a Mm -hmm. car. I felt this weird tension that almost yes. didn't feel like it was coming from the movie or the filmmaking, just like the oddly unpredictable nature of the characters. Mm-hmm. Cause you begin the movie thinking that uh, Franz and Arthur are just kind of normal, normal dudes who are in this class with uh Odile and mm-hmm. found out about the money that the people she lives with has and, you know, want to steal it. That's like pretty basic. But at, at first you feel like, oh, yeah, they're they, they like her and they're interested in her and all this stuff. But then as the time goes on, you begin to realize just through the actions of the characters, not because the movie is exactly telling you this, that like at least Arthur doesn't give a shit about her and he's kind of a no. sociopath. Oh, big time. That you, and it takes like a little bit before you're you're like completely sure of that. Mhm. But for me like once it once you do you like I was like like bothered by him on screen cuz I was like what's this psycho yeah, going to do? You next? just never know what he's going to do next. Like yeah. There's one or two times where he just like says or does something that makes you feel like, "Oh, that's that's not natural. That that's not a normal thing." <laughs> And then it's like one scene, he'll just like, what was the scene? There was a scene where uh, he hit Odile. Mm -hmm. And I remember being like, oh, shit, she didn't deserve that. And then she's like, you didn't have to hit me. And I'm like, why did he even do that? And that's when you begin to feel like, oh, this guy's a little like unhinged. And I I no longer feel like I can trust him. And -hmm. it's like the movie never insinuates before he does something a little crazy that he would ever do something like that. So it's like, now I don't trust the filmmaker. (laughs) Like, like I, along with all the other weird little things like the narration and just like Uh odd editing choices and stuff. Like I real, like things could suddenly get really dark and I wouldn't be expecting it at all. Totally. I mean, I was, I was eating that stuff up. Yeah. Just, it was cause it was just, I went in not Millsy. Not knowing a single thing about this movie. Well, why don't you tell the listener a single thing about the movie? What is our premise here? Well, Millsy, two crooks with a fondness for old Hollywood B-movies convince a languages student to help them commit a robbery. 
Yeah, it's I see. I even read that synopsis before seeing the movie. Like that's uh-huh. that's really all I knew about it as well. Yeah, and it's like that is the premise, but, but somehow oddly like this, it feels like it's not. <laughs> yeah, like the premise, they give they give you plenty of points to that premise and like plenty of parts leading up to it. I mean, it feel it almost feels like this movie goes on for a solid hour before it actually like gets into the plot. I would easily say that's true. Movie's about an hour and a half long, like a little more, mm-hmm. but it's just like so casual. And they'll talk a little yeah. about like how much money do they have, and did you count it, and where's the right. money? And but it's like it's not the sole focus of the characters. Not, like they're no. just hanging out and going and getting drinks yeah. and flirting and right riding around and uh, yeah, just like riding around, like doing like uh, doing donuts in the mud. Yeah. That funny little convertible. And I was just like, this and then like the last 20 minutes is mm-hmm. when all of a sudden it's like game on. But even like what was read that synopsis again really quick. Do you still have it there in front of you? Yeah. Two crooks with a fondness for old Hollywood B movies convince a languages student to help them commit a robbery. Even that like commit a robbery. Like I had it in mm-hmm. my head. This is almost going to be like a heist film. Like and then really all it is is like the girl Odile lives with these two people mm-hmm. and one of them just keeps a shitload of money that he's like kind of stolen from the government through tax right. fraud or something in like a cabinet he's in like, his yeah, bedroom. He's hoarding it in a cabinet with no lock on the door or the thing. Yeah. It's not like it's in a safe that they're going to have to crack. It's not like he just leaves his bedroom door unlocked right. even like. Yeah. Even they're like not robbing they a bank. There's no like payroll truck they have to take out or something. It's <laughs> yeah. so casual of a robbery. Yeah. But then they just like fell into this like flirting with this girl turned into be like, yeah, somebody's got a box full of money at my house. Yeah. I don't know. It is it like the more you talk about it and break it down, it is so unusual. Like it is. Yeah. Like that right there is like the proof of what the French New Wave is, is that every time I expected something from the movie. Mm hmm. It did not give me what I was expecting. But yeah, I like it. Was, I was. I would say I was in the perfect mood for it. Not that I was like by no means in a bad mood from Rio Bravo because I enjoyed that movie. But this was just so different that I was like, just like totally ready to not have any knowledge of this movie or what it was going to do. And I was just like, I was just like rolling along with it. I was just like, I don't know where this thing's taking me, but I'm along for the ride. I'm in the <laughs> back of this crazy uh, convertible too. Yeah. I will say that um, I I found myself, and you know, maybe this kind of like I was saying before about how uh, I felt unnerved by one of the characters, and mm-hmm. that's like a negative feeling in general to be unnerved or made uncomfortable by something. But at the same time, it's like it proves that the film is having an effect on you, and even if it's like a negative feeling, it's like it's making you feel something. Mm-hmm. In that same kind of regard, I will say that I was not checked out, but I was a little, my mind was wandering a bit in the middle of the film because again, Mm. like they do not get to the robbery stuff until the end. And uh, I was just sitting there as the time was going by thinking like, when is this movie going to get to the point? (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, there's fun little bits like that whole sequence while they're at the restaurant. And uh, they keep on like playing fucking musical chairs, like because they all want to sit on the bench oh. side. <laughs> yeah, 
And, and like it's it spends like a couple minutes of just like all trying to light up cigarettes and move mm-hmm. around chairs like yeah totally and like Arthur pouring the alcohol into Odile's uh, uh, coke and stuff like that right like yeah, yeah. fun little just playful scene or mm-hmm. uh, the dance sequence uh, uh, which, an amazing dance number which was like oddly fun to watch even though it's so like you know nothing much <laughs> happens it goes on like three times as long as you think it's going to yeah they dance for like the entire length of the song (laughs) but i also like didn't want to stop i was like this is amazing and i looked at megan megan was like what is going on and i was like they're dancing (laughs) oh did she watch this with you (laughs) she was like in the room for a good chunk of it Uh uh-huh and i was like look at these moves and like sometimes the camera's like not even focusing like on their feet or anything it's almost like the the cameraman stepped away and it's just like they're they're doing these same crazy moves i was like this is amazing i was like I was like, I can't wait to tell Millsy next time he he visits. We got some dance you, steps me and to, Megan are to gonna, learn. Yep. Next time we're out to eat with the crew, we're just gonna stand up and do that dance. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, we gotta handle something real quick. We go and do this crazy hop skip dance. I was like, well, the funny thing is, like that sequence was like it stands out and it's like uh, a memorable scene because of how long it goes on and everything. And that is one of those mm-hmm. moments where uh, the director just cuts in and is like. Through their dancing, we can see the kind of emotions that our characters are going through. Arthur mm-hmm. always looks at his feet, yada, 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 you know? <laughs> well, right, right. But apparently that is like the scene from this movie that has, you know, had the biggest effect on cinema in general, which I never would have guessed. Okay. But uh, from what I read, that dance scene in the restaurant has influenced, well, specifically the uh, the dancing scene in Pulp Fiction with... Uh, mm-hmm. Travolta and Uma Thurman. Okay. Uh, that's that's a direct influence on Tarantino. Hal Hartley's Single Men, uh, or Simple Men, rather. Martin Hines's The Go-Getter. Roger Mitchell's Le Weekend. These are all things I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a short film called The Gentleman's Wager with Jude Law where he does the dance. And apparently they also mimic the dance in an episode of that show Maniac that Emma Stone and Jonah Hill are in. Okay. Apparently, it's just like this is, this is the scene from this movie, and I never would have known it. All right. I mean, I could dig it. Mm-hmm. You know, she's got her skirt and that that she's wearing his hat. You know, uh, I think Franz has got the the argyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so just like the get ups and everything. I mean, as she dances, Odile wonders if the boys recognize <laughs> the movement of her breasts under her sweater. It's like <laughs> true, true. Like it's very much like out of a book that part. But I didn't, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind those bits. Yeah. It's just like they'll be driving along and all of a sudden Jean-Luc Godard will just come in and start like not just saying like they drive down the street, then they stop at the corner and turn right. But he'll be like, as they drive down the street, the night or the day turns to night, like the unfolding of a flower in the breeze. It's just <laughs> so weirdly. Uh-huh. It just I don't know. It's like I don't know why the narration is there. I don't really know what right. it adds aside from making yeah. me question what it adds but is that french new wave mills that's french new wave baby (laughs) doing (laughs) unconventional things with your movie i'm all bored like just reading passages out of a book seemingly but yeah and then they got and then of course you know still gives us a a shootout and a ridiculous death scene yeah i'll be honest i did not fully understand what was going on in that scene at first (laughs) Mm mm-hmm or or who it was. Yeah. So when Franz asked to get out of the car, 
And again, it's not like they show Franz saying, hey, stop, I, I want to go back and check on something. It's mm-hmm. just they show the car in a medium or like a wide shot stop. And then Jean-Luc Godard says, like, Arthur requested for them to stop so he could go back and check something. <laughs> it's strange. Right. But, um, yeah, like I knew he went back. And then obviously I know because, again, the narrator says it. We don't see it actually happen but mm-hmm. that the uh the other two turned around because they saw arthur's uncle who up to mm-hmm. this point i wouldn't expect that they should have any reason to recognize him much less while speeding down the road well, going true, the opposite true. direction but then they go back and i was thinking like okay well is the uncle involved because he have obviously knew about the money and then we get they show us the house again and they show somebody like getting the money out of the dog house and i had no idea who i was watching because it was a wide shot Yes. And I was like, okay, is this the uncle? And if so, how did he know that the money was in the doghouse? And then I was like, well, if it's Arthur, how does he know the money's in the doghouse? Like, you would think the person who would know the money's in the doghouse is Mm -hmm. Mr. Stoltz, the guy it belongs to, but we've never even seen him in the film before. (laughs) Right. Yeah, I think, to me, it was just like, he must have just been thinking about where else could they have hid that money because they spread it out. And I feel like he, they kept like, a, like someone would like pat the dog or someone would like, they mm-hmm. walked by that doghouse a couple times. So I figured. Well, even as they were leaving before, like they stopped and he came back uh, as they're leaving the house, uh, uh, Arthur stops and looks at the doghouse for a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was thinking like, Oh, he's going to walk over and find the money in the doghouse. And then of course it's like a couple minutes later after they've left and come back. But then you think like, is he won't, he's going to try and keep it for himself. I mean, so many things ran through my head. I was thinking, like, okay, he's in cahoots with the uncle, and, like, because Arthur's (laughs) the first one who goes upstairs to look for the money, and Mm -hmm. the other two stay downstairs. I was thinking, okay, he took it and, like, chucked it out the window in a bag, and the uncle's going to come get it or something, like, but then it's, like, Arthur versus the uncle. Right. It's, yeah, it was very weird. And then he shoots the uncle, like, four times or five times. (laughs) Yep. And then the uncle just shoots him once. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And then he has like the craziest death throws where he just like, yeah, he runs around in circles almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I was just like, die, Arthur, die. And then, you know, the Odile, she gets away with Franz. And uh, I believe the movie closes with telling us about the sequel of their exploits, <laughs> like in South America or something. Yeah. Which I didn't think to look, but I wonder if that's actually a movie. I don't know. I think I like it better if it's not. They just had to have that part <laughs> in there. Yeah. Fascinating film, to be sure. I I have to agree. Yeah, it's just like with having zero expectations, it just like what I got out of it was like very highly enjoyable. Because <laughs> it was just like this is what I, what zero I knew about French New Wave in this movie and why Quentin Dio would like it. It was just like. Oh, it was just so, it was just a wild, a wild time. Well, once more, speaking of Quentin Tarantino, in addition to him naming his production company after this film, uh, what I read was that Tarantino read Pauline Kael's review of Band Apart, which described it as, it's as if a French poet took an ordinary banal American crime novel and told it to us in terms of the romance and beauty he read between the lines. Oh. Of this quote, Tarantino says, when I read that, I literally thought that's what I want to do. What I wanted to give to movies I'd never heard anyone describe so well before. 
I do like that myself, Mills, I will say. It's a good quote. Damn good. And Amy Talbin of The Village Voice called it a Godard film for people who don't much care for Godard. (laughs) (laughs) Which Uh, makes me curious to see another one of his films for contrast, but... You know, back to the cast, Odile, like, I know Anna Karina is, like, a name I know, but I don't know from what exactly, so kind of interested to... I think she was just a big part of the French New Wave. Yeah, I looked up the whole cast just to see, like, oh, did any of these people, like, make the jump to Hollywood, or were they in any other, like... Because I'd heard of A Band Apart, I'd heard of Breathless, I've heard of a couple of other movies, uh, mm-hmm. you know, from Truffaut and, and Godard. Not that I'm super knowledgeable about any of them, but... Uh, yeah, n- like, no films really rang much of a bell that the three leads were ever in, aside from this. But mm-hmm. maybe that's just mm. because I don't know all of the great French films that they were in. Yeah, same here. So That's about all I have to say about that one. How about you? Yeah, no, I think we about covered the wild and crazy times of uh, Band Apart. <laughs> Old Hollywood Western and French New Wave. What could we possibly talk about next? Mm-hmm. Lady Snowblood, Strikingly beautiful young woman is raised from birth to be a deadly instrument of revenge against the swindlers who destroyed her family. Yeah, this one, man, the I actually like wrote down in my own words the like the premise of the film and like the motivation of the character because I was a little confused by it while watching the film and I had to go back and rewatch the flashback scene to fully wrap my head around it because Mm -hmm. it is not as simple as I thought it was going to be. Like I knew this film was, you know, beautiful Japanese lady takes bloody revenge on people who wronged her, Mm -hmm. but like all the wronging happened before she was even born. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you my version really quick of the actual like setup for this movie. Hit it. I forget exactly what year, but it was in the 1800s, late 1800s. Uh, Japanese government instituted a military draft, which the peasants disagreed with, resulting in riots. Uh, Rumors spread of men in white who worked for the government and would drain the blood of draft dodgers. (laughs) So 
a family, mother, father, and son, young son. Uh, the father being a, uh, a school, school teacher. teacher. Uh, they are moving to a new town, and he just made the unfortunate decision to wear all white that day. Yeah. So some of the peasants who live in this village that they're passing through uh, spot him wearing white and assume he's one of these people come to murder them for dodging the draft. So four of them, uh, three men and a woman, murder him in spectacular fashion. Every single one Very. of them at least inflicting one wound so that we know that yes. they're all you know, responsible. Mm. It's not enough that they murder him. They then kill the young son kidnap the mother sayo and even though one of the four kidnappers is a woman who just sits there like cackling and enjoying the insanity uh they rape her for three days and nights straight evil straight evil (laughs) and then when they're done they all go their separate ways and one of the four villains his name was shokei tokuichi uh he's become fond of his new fuck toy so he keeps her around, and then she ends up murdering him, as mm-hmm. one would expect. But when she murders him, the police arrest her and throw her in jail for life. Right. I was expecting her daughter, who grows up to get revenge, to be the illegitimate child of one of these men who raped her, her mother. Oh. But well, no. You're sure to think that to a point. That is not twisted enough for Lady Snowblood. So now in prison for the rest of her life, knowing she'll never get out of prison, Sayo's plan is to act like a slut and fuck every single prison guard in the place until one of them gets her pregnant so she can have a child that will then be allowed to leave the prison and can grow up to be trained as an assassin to kill the mm-hmm. three other people that she herself didn't have an opportunity yeah. to before being arrested. I mean, that is some twisted shit. They, uh, they certainly did her wrong. So yeah, they, she they did her, her revenge. And this was an extreme revenge plan. Yeah. Uh, so much more complicated and fucked up than I was expecting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, it's kind of with these, this kind of movie, the the setup when the husband is killed, you just kind of know, like, oh, there's a kid and a woman left. Like, you almost just, the writing's on the wall with of the horrible trauma she's going to be submitted to. Mm-hmm. So you, that happens, and then it gets even crazier with her, like, thirst for revenge. So, yeah. And then there's the whole, like, I don't even know if they try to say it's like a, she, it's a demon angle, but basically Lady Snowblood is consumed by like her mother's spirit even like it's kind of like fast and loose with how they word it in the movie yeah i wasn't sure if that was meant to be taken literally or if it was more a figurative thing like yeah you know there's a lot of like you know fantasy folklore when it comes to japanese culture and Mm -hmm. like it almost read or played to me as though they were likening her to this vengeful demon Right, and Asura, I believe they refer to it as, but mm-hmm. yeah, she she's called that many times in the movie. Yeah, but yeah, she's. Uh, I think it basically the the modern day in it is like twenty years after, so she's be twenty years old, and mm-hmm. she's been training to be unleashed, and uh, she certainly does that. Yeah, 
And so this is the film that has, of the ones we're talking about on this episode, the most obvious uh, influence on Tarantino. This movie mm-hmm. is essentially like the play-by-play storybook for the movie Kill Bill. Right. In that it's a woman who was wronged uh, kind of specifically by four people, if you don't include the big mastermind Bill. Mm-hmm. Like that video that I watched just before recording that I mentioned earlier, they do a side-by-side comparison and it's the four enemies, uh, three men and a woman who killed mm-hmm. Lady Snowblood's mm-hmm. would-be father. You know, it's not actually her father. Right. And there's a shot, like a down shot of the four of them standing over the mother and like looking down at her. And it's exactly mirrored in the shot of oh, the... Uh, the Viper Squad or whatever they call them, like looking down on the bride in the church yep, yep. in Kill yep, Bill. Yep. No, I know exactly what you're talking about. And just tr- like having to track them down and find them with like the names that they've changed to and everything and kill them mm-hmm. one by one. and. Lots of the visuals chapters. with like, yeah, the chapter the, breaks come directly out of this movie. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of stuff dealing directly with Oren Ishii from Kill Bill and like the, at the end, after the climax, that like snowy little oh, yeah. like garden that she walks out into is very mm-hmm. similar to the, the garden that she fights Oren Ishii in and Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. So lots of comparisons. Big time, big time. And it was exciting to watch because it was like those kind of, like I wasn't picking out exact things, but the chapters was big. Mm-hmm. Just kind of the, the overall revenge story. Yeah. You know, it was part of it, but the chapters was a big one. Those kind of images with the snow, especially. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the, the, the spraying of blood that you get with these, these, <laughs> this genre, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Man, something... I haven't seen a lot of these types of films. Uh, there's like a lot more of these kind of like Japanese period, you know, revenge and, mm-hmm. you know, samurai kind of films that I need to see. Mm-hmm. But just based on some of the ones I have, including, so the lead actress in this is Miko Kaji, who I've become a pretty big fan of because I've seen her in some of the, uh, Female Prisoner Scorpion movies, which okay. are in a box set from Arrow Video that I have. So a fan of her from a couple of films. And I actually have another movie that she's in I haven't watched yet uh, called uh, Blind Woman's Curse, also from Arrow, that I'm looking forward mm-hmm. to. But uh, something fascinating about her, another connection to Tarantino, actually, is um, there's actually a song in this movie in Lady Snowblood that she sings, because I guess she was a musician as well. Or at least okay. a singer. And Tarantino used that song in Kill Bill, I think during the Oranishii scene. And uh that his use of that song in that movie, it like re-sparked interest in Miko Kaji's music so much that she actually, after the release of Kill Bill, released new songs for the first time in like thirty oh. years. Oh, good for her. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And just another cool thing that like Tarantino finds like it's it's a thing that he does where like he'll take, you know, Pam Greer, who's like kind of a forgotten actress at the time when he made Jackie Brown and like bring her back into the the fold and mm-hmm. and like David Carradine, same thing with Kill Bill. Oh, totally. And like totally. he didn't even mean to do it with uh, Miko Kaji and <laughs> It's right. just cool that shit like that happens. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I feel like I caught at some point that that song you're talking about. She said it's it's in both movies. Yeah, it's like it's almost like the theme song for uh for Lady Snowblood. I it might play mm-hmm. it like the end. 
I think it is. It's something at the end I thought I caught, but I was like, I can't remember. You know what it I think it so is? familiar. It must be in Kill Bill somewhere. I believe it is the scene at the end after um, the daughter of the one person that Lady Snowblood killed comes up and stabs her in the snow, mm-hmm. and then she like falls on the ground, and that song plays. I'm pretty sure that's the one. And I think it plays as Oren Ishii is dying in, uh, in Kill Bill as well in the okay. snow. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah I got to watch this video you watched and stuff like that because I feel like it's going to be tons of connections like that. It's a cool video. Yeah, there's something inherent about revenge films, uh, be they this style or, you know, there's plenty of Western revenge films. I mean, this movie actually has a very similar premise to uh, another movie that was very influential to Quentin Tarantino when he made Kill Bill, which is Death Rides a Horse with uh, Lee Van Cleef. Mm-hmm which is also about like a a young kid whose family is murdered and he wants revenge and so on and so forth. But just that kind of uh, easy to follow plot line of like one by one by one by one going down the line Mm -hmm. and getting Mm -hmm. revenge on these people that you're very quickly in the beginning of the film just built up to hate. (laughs) Right. There's something so satisfying about that. Yeah. It's like the crow. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a billion movies like this. Oh, of course. The Punisher is, you know, based on these same kind of concept. Yeah, I can dig it. Yeah. Something that I really liked about this movie and similar movies like it, uh, like some of the female prisoner scorpion movies, are just the fact that the Japanese seem to have no hesitations about putting on screen just crazy and oftentimes beautiful visuals regardless of whether it takes you out of the reality of the film or not. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. One of the spraying that kind of blood. Well, yeah, the blood's a big one. But uh, one of the coolest looking scenes in the movie to me were the early sequences of the mother Sayo in prison with like Mm -hmm. out the the window in the back of the prison cell. Like she's screaming bloody murder and like having this child and like dying in childbirth with these other women around like prisoners helping her deliver the baby. And in the background, it almost looks like something out of the movie Sin City, the way that movie is like stark white Mm -hmm. on black, the snow Mm -hmm. falling in the background. And then like as the scene progresses, it turns red and it's like red snow falling. It's just such a cool image. That's snow blood, Milsey. <laughs> yeah, that's snow blood. <laughs> but yeah, stuff stuff like that throughout the movie, uh, peppered in here and there. Even mm-hmm. just the picturesque uh, setting for the very end in the snow that we talked about that's mimicked in the over an Ishii scene in Kill Bill. Yeah, I'm with you. There's some cool little action elements in this. I mean, oh yeah, that whole ending, uh, the the climactic ending in whatever that like party was that they were at like that classy kind party where that, everyone's wearing yeah, masks that, that eyes wide shut party yeah one. it's like a masquerade ball where they track down uh the final villain mm-hmm. who had pretended to be dead mm-hmm. i love the whole staging of that sequence where lady snowblood sees him across the room and mm-hmm. like she rushes to get there through all the people but the time by the time she gets there he's gone and mm-hmm. then uh the guy she's with smashes the window and you see the villain behind the mirror after it's smashed and he like runs off to the left and then they rush into the room and stop and there's yep. two stairwells and it's like, well, which one is it? So they <laughs> yep. each go up one and just that oh, yeah. felt very like Hitchcock, Brian De Palma to me, the staging of that whole sequence. 
mm-hmm. where she's the one cool. that really wants the vengeance and then she gets up right. to the top of her stairwell and it was actually the other yeah. one where the other guy is and yeah. they spend a little time with those pigeons on that yeah, chandelier exactly <laughs> like just yeah. totally oh i gotcha the weird cool pacing of it and then like mm-hmm. her swinging across and yeah i don't know just just some yeah. good stuff there that was that like it really is generally just like gripping because of the way it was filmed mm-hmm. i loved all that stuff yeah no totally man because it's great i mean it starts out the action i mean even like late the first time you see lady snowblood take somebody out she just she, you know she takes out like those four guys that gets her to that one i think he's like a crime boss mm-hmm. and she only does that so she can basically use it to get a meeting with the the guy that's gonna find the crazy hobo the crime balls. For. Yeah, right from that action, I was just like, I was like, I'm in good hands. This mm-hmm. is what I was hoping for. Like, this is what I was expecting, and I was like, yes, this is the exact kind of movie I purchased it for, and it's paying <laughs> off right now. <laughs> I'll tell you something. I was a little relieved by, like, when she goes right after that to find the like hobo, <laughs> like mm-hmm. hideous crime boss guy to get information. She meets the people in that town who are allegedly going to lead her to him. And then they like try and gang rape her in that field. And I was thinking to myself like so early in the film, like, oh man, like how dark and fucked up is this movie going to be? And I was honestly so relieved when the crime boss shows up and like stops the whole thing and is like, stop it. She's the one who like paid to come see me or whatever. Right. Like you idiots, she's uh, she's my guest. Yeah, I was you know? just thinking to myself, like, how much more punishment does fucking ladies no blood have to <laughs> yeah. go through? Right. <laughs> totally. So I was a little relieved there, but um tell you something I was not expecting was the whole late in the second act subplot about the uh the writer mm. mm-hmm. who like wants to tell her story and writes like uh, right. like a yeah. novel about her or some shit. Yeah. Ends up like pen, you know, like uh, penning her as Lady Snowblood. Mm-hmm. Like, like when someone like sees a, you know, from like a Marvel movie where it's like, oh, the newspaper dubbed him uh, the Green Goblin or whatever, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I was I was not expecting that, or for her to even have kind of like a sidekick for the end of the movie. Yeah, kind. I mean, it, it added to it because it's. I mean, it would have been just fine if she just tracks down everyone she has to kill, but you mm-hmm. know, it definitely added. A little bit of a curveball there. Yeah. Because even then, that who you find out who he is, mm-hmm. is an interesting take. Yeah, and I mean. It ends up being like the movie, you know, there's a few different instances of it's like uh, children are either acting on or paying for the sins of their parents. Mm-hmm. You know? So I yeah. enjoyed that bit. No, for sure. And she's such like a, you know, strong, silent type, like, quote unquote, man, a few words kind of character. Mm-hmm. That you know, it was nice to have somebody again, like a sidekick for her to yeah, right to talk opposite to. opposite in Play in off. all ways too. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, I'm with you, man. The whole movie felt like a relief of just being like, oh, this, this is why this is so renowned. You know, mm-hmm. like I get it. Yeah, it's just uh, again, I knew that there was a movie called Lady Snowblood. I knew that mm-hmm. Miko Kaji was in it, and I knew that it inspired right. some of the stuff in Kill Bill. But it was not until watching it that I realized like how. Kill Bill would not exist if it wasn't for this movie. Like, oh, yeah. I kind of had it in my head. It was just the Oren character that was the main inspiration. But, yeah, it's this whole freaking movie. Like, Yeah, no, big time. Tarantino, like, almost remade Lady Snowblood with, like, a <laughs> yeah, ton right. of curveballs thrown in. Yeah, yeah. But he, do- he does it well. Mm-hmm. 
so I thought that this was based on a manga, and it indeed is. But the thing that I found interesting, or perhaps unusual, when I was reading about it is that uh, it almost feels like the manga was written specifically to be turned into a movie or something, because mm-hmm. the creator of the manga, Kazuo Kamimura, uh, I read a quote from him saying that he basically wrote the part for Miko Kaji. Oh, cool. Which I'd never heard of something quite like that before, unless it was a weird translation. Like if he liked Miko Kaji as an actress or something and based the character off of her like that, I could see. But writing the mm-hmm. character for her, because it is a manga, not just like a film script. Like that's a, that's a little unusual to me. I didn't really understand the concept of that, but right, like the role, I guess, was meant for her. That's cool. Mm -hmm. I can dig it. Every time I watch a movie like this, like these more, I guess, exploitative kind of Japanese films, Uh because, you know, I've at some point a couple of years ago, I was like, yeah, a guy that I really have to catch up on his movies is Akira Kurosawa, because at the time I had seen none of them. And I've watched a good like seven or eight Kurosawa movies now, and I like some, I'm kind of bored by others, you know, there's still a few that I really do want to see, like High and Low, uh, I have mm-hmm. a good feeling about and I haven't watched, but um, whenever I watch movies like this, or like Female Prisoner Scorpion, it always makes me want to see more movies like this, and this definitely had that effect on me as well. Nice, yeah, same here, for sure. I was like, there's just untapped potential with stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And again, just the visuals and... It's just oh yeah, like looking at all three of the movies that we're talking about. I like I said before, when it comes to like those old school American westerns, they may not be my favorite kind of westerns, but they all have the same kind of feeling that puts me in like a nice, comfortable place. And then the exact opposite happens with Band Apart, where I haven't seen a lot of movies like it, and I mm-hmm. straight up said that it made me feel kind of uncomfortable because I didn't know what to expect <laughs> half the time because of how right. different the movie is. Uh-huh. And then this, it's like, it comes from a completely different culture to my own, but I've seen just enough movies like Lady Snowblood that I really feel like I kind of know what to expect going in, and I really like the style. And it does feel like the Japanese version of like a spaghetti western or something, like yeah. oh, that yeah, level of violence and the, you know, the the premise itself is a little convoluted with you know the whole backstory mm-hmm. of the character but just like the simple revenge plot and everything right i mean i love a revenge story mm-hmm. so you know i anyone like evil people getting their comeuppance will always <laughs> appeal to me yeah. especially you know even if it is a dish best served cold you know that that <laughs> always adds to it as well so yeah that old uh, klingon proverb oh yeah <laughs> so so yeah yeah, man. Big fan. Lady Snowblood. Uh, honestly, looking for, very forward to watching the sequel now. Not exactly sure what that's going to entail because it feels like mm-hmm. the story was pretty much wrapped up in this one. But right. thankfully, well, she, yeah. the sequel is part of the two-pack with uh, the yeah. first one from Criterion. So. And I don't know if you noticed, there's, there's a nice poster in that mm-hmm. case as well. There so. is. I was not aware of until I opened, cracked that open. So mm-hmm. that was a nice surprise. They do it up right over there at the Criterion Collection. They sure do. They sure do. But um, Mills, I'm a big fan. Across the board, three movies. Yeah. So This was a fun experiment for sure. Mm-hmm. Good picks, my friend. Uh, we're going to start to wrap it up here with some posters. Please. 
All right, we got uh, Rio Bravo, which uh, I feel like I'm super familiar with this image because there is like a cheap, shitty DVD copy of this movie that's been floating around uh, my house since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or, well, obviously not a kid with uh, DVD, but like since the early 2000s. It is just this stark-ass image. Like, it doesn't have all of the character stuff along the bottom and all that text up at the top. It's pretty much just those three characters in a diagonal with the title of the movie on the box. I mean, that would be better than this, but... Yeah. I mean, we've talked about enough of these posters Mm -hmm. over the course of this show that, uh, I mean, we're pretty much broken records at this point, probably with the amount of text and how it shouldn't be much. (laughs) Right. But that that was a, you know, part of the times for mm-hmm. sure. So, yeah, John Wayne, the big guy with the battered hat, and Dean Martin, the ragged woman wrecked cast off dude, and Ricky Nelson, the rockin' baby faced gun fisted kid, and time was running out through bullet holes at Rio Bravo. <laughs> I just don't know why you need character descriptions on the poster. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. You'd think. Three, you know, well-known handsome dudes are going to make them as big as possible, but nope. And then even at the bottom, like, it's so small that I can't read it, but there's character descriptions for four other people in the movie. Mm-hmm. And then what is that diagonal text below the characters? I don't even know. Uh, you've seen nothing like them together. And in the heat and something of Rio Bravo, nothing can tear them apart. <clears throat> yeah, just... It's just too. It's too much. I mean, for what it is, like if you took if you took this down to like the nitty gritty, those three characters with like the the shadows and everything looks good. If you had just that, Rio Bravo, even in that cool little Wild West font, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, this is a good poster. Yeah, I agree. It is just unfortunately way too busy. Yeah, just bogged down big time. Completely needlessly busy. Mm-hmm. Band apart. Band Apart, I really like this poster. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in that you wouldn't expect them to cut off Anna Karina's face like they do, but I feel like that shot is in the movie a lot, mm-hmm. so that's why they did it. Um, I kind of like the when it's the the two guys show up with the stocking, you know, the pantyhose over their heads. Mm-hmm. They look kind of creepy like they do in this poster. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like a, the weird bit how it, Basically, like the red flows into the car, then it looks like a, there's a bit of the shootout with the name, but overall composition, everything I enjoy with the colors. Yeah, so I do like this one. I think it's a very good looking poster. The thing for me is we've talked about before, like, does the image on the poster, is it representative of the film? And like, yes, all of the things on this poster are mm-hmm. in the film, but that scene at the bottom where it looks like someone is being shot by someone crouched next to a car. Like, mm-hmm. that is in the movie, but it's, like, the two of them joking around, like, pretending <laughs> right. to be shot in the street. <laughs> right. And to look at this poster with, like, the red splashed behind it, it looks like, oh, there's a shootout in this film. Which, I mean, well, there kind there of is. is at the end, but not really and not with these characters. Yeah. And then even, I mean, like we said, the actual robbery in the film is, like, such a minor part at the end. Like, the mm-hmm. last, like, 20 minutes or so that... Having the two of the main characters on in the film just with like the black silhouetted faces while they look cool doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like it speaks of the film. 
Like the poster feels like it's all about the robbery. When if you watch oh, the movie, it sure. feels like it's barely about the robbery. Right. Like the whole movie is based around is there going to be this robbery or not? But yeah, it's so much, so little of the screen time yeah. goes towards it. As much as, you know, based on the the quotes and stuff I was reading earlier about how the French New Wave seemed to be all about, like, getting away from normal, typical, you know, cinema-going fare, this poster feels like it misrepresents the movie as, like, a normal, typical movie-going fare. Does it not? I guess. I mean, I I wouldn't be quick to say it, like, misrepresents it, but... It's weird. It's just so weird because it's just the way the way the movie is. And like you said, all these things are in this movie. But then it's like, what? How else? Like, what? What do you do with this to do this poster in a different way that's more fitting of the movie? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I just know that when I think back on Band Apart, I'm gonna think of like the dancing scene, <laughs> or. <laughs> You know, them riding around in their car. Yeah. But then it's like, but if that's the poster, and then it's like, by the time you get to the climax, it's like, yeah, it's like, what do you put on this poster? Besides, if you just threw an, in this poster, somewhere in there, you had the shot of them dancing. I was like, then that, that does it make more sense? I don't know. <laughs> like, instead of them, like, by the car getting fake shot at the bottom, it was just <laughs> right. them dancing? Yeah. I mean, maybe. I don't know. Like, I think it's a very cool poster. Uh, I like the design of it Mm -hmm. just as an image like that's pleasing to the eye. I wouldn't really change anything. I like the colors and the layout and everything Mm -hmm. and all the elements. But it really does feel to me like it it kind of misrepresents the movie in a weird way that I would think somebody who made the movie Band Apart wouldn't want to represent the film. Oh, interesting. But. It's a good poster. Something yeah. interesting about uh, Anna Karina up there, like staring directly into your soul. That's mm-hmm. another thing that caught me off guard a couple times in the movie is she will look directly into the camera now and then. Mm. Yeah. Because the first she time know, like, I thought mm-hmm. it was a mistake. It was like just a brief second in the classroom, I think, in the beginning yeah. where I was like, oh, I just I just caught her looking at the camera like you're not supposed to when you're like a, a, a an actor. Mm-hmm. And then the second time they were like, they met up out behind a warehouse or something and they were like walking through this building. And I think Arthur mentioned something about like, we need a plan. And then she was like, what plan? What do we need a plan for? And she looks at the audience as though she's looking to us and saying like, what's going on here? <laughs> I do remember that. Yes. <laughs> and I rewound it and I was like, that's really weird. Like that time it was definitely on purpose. We'll see. French New Wave, baby. And then there was a third time, I forget exactly when, I think it might have been in the train, when she's like singing the song in the train with Arthur. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's almost like the first time it was just a glimpse. The second time, it was like a knowing look. And the third time, it was like she was staring directly out at the audience. And I was like, mm-hmm. what is this movie doing to me? Uh, I love it. Threw you through a loop. That's what it did. Yeah, but even that's represented on the poster here. That's kind of funny. Oh, I love it. And then uh, we have Lady Snowblood, which I feel like there could have been a much more interesting poster for this movie. Yeah. I like all the copy and all the color and everything. Mm -hmm. Like that, just that particular layout I enjoy. It's almost like I'm 
this is the one of the lesser interesting shots they could have used of her, mm-hmm. especially with the the bit in the foreground. Is that supposed to be like one of those fans or something? That's her umbrella that gets sliced. Oh, I missed that completely. Yeah, it's like uh, in that kind of early scene that we were talking no, about yeah. where yeah. she fights no, those you. guys to get the information. One of them like slashes her umbrella that she uses almost as like a shield and it's got like a, yeah. a chunk missing out of it. Oh, no, totally. Um, oh, I see it on the right hand side. I kind of missed there was the bit of it on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it works. It's but... just like as visually stunning as this movie is, mm-hmm. just a waist up shot of the actress just holding a sword in like not an exciting way. Yeah, totally. <laughs> With a a design element in the foreground that, as was just, you know, proven by you, isn't like, it doesn't jump out as like something meaningful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. Just could have been... Just again with all the cool, the cool visuals in this movie, this is a little disappointing. Yeah, I'm with you, Milzy. Break it down for the people. Mm. Well, I would give a lot more props to the Rio Bravo poster if it wasn't for all that stupid, unnecessary text. Right. That one is like sixty five percent text. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> If you took away all the text, it would be a cool minimalist image, but it almost feels like the artwork is minimalist, so they'd have all that white space to put all the right, text. Right, right, So, you know, uh, just based on poster imagery alone, mm-hmm. I'm going to give four stacks of cash found in oh. the refrigerator, which mm-hmm. I wish I could remember the term that they used for it when they were trying to find the money in the house and band apart. Uh, mm-hmm. They called it like the housewife's safe or something like that. <laughs> I think that is what they called it. Yeah. As though like that's a place that housewives always stash their money uh-huh. is in the fridge. Yeah. I think that's exactly what they called it. I'll give uh, I'll give band apart four stacks of uh, frozen cash from the refrigerator. Nice. I mean, I guess just because I like the art, I will give two crumpled up rolling papers that Dean Martin could not just seem to roll his fucking cigarette in to Rio Bravo. All right. And because it's not terrible, I just feel like it's kind of uninspired, Uh, but Mm -hmm. I do like the colors. I will give two bloody streaks sprayed on the wall by a severed limb to Lady (laughs) Snowblood. Well done. Take a bow, friend. Thank you. Thank you. Very nice. Time to buy them, borrow them, and burn them. Mm -hmm. Down to the nitty gritty. Uh, I'll take the lead here. Please. And I will say that uh, Lady Snowblood fully earned my buy. I think that the movie is strikingly beautiful at times. Mm-hmm. Just it, it hits the, it scratches those uh, exploitation itches that we talked about, revenge film stuff. Uh, I had a lot of fun recognizing all of the things that Quentin Tarantino lifted from it. Uh, I like the music. Um, it's just, it's something I've been looking forward to watching for a long time. And I very much enjoyed finally sitting down and catching up with it here, here, uh, not as easy as I may have expected to pick my borrow and burn because none of these movies deserve to be burned. No, we're not launching anything into the sun tonight. Yeah. But, uh, I think just based on my own preferences and the, uh, comfortable feeling I get from movies like this. I had a real good time with uh, Rio Bravo 
It was not mm-hmm. the uh, kind of surprise viewing experience that I had with Lady Snowblood, not exactly mm-hmm. knowing what I was getting into with that one. I feel like you always kind of know what you're getting with a John Wayne Western, but uh, I just loved, kind of like Tarantino says, hanging out with the characters. I thought Stumpy was a blast. And uh, yeah, John Wayne, potentially like my least favorite or least well-remembered part of the movie, but I liked uh, Angie Dickinson, his feathers, and I liked the shop owner or the the hotel owner, Carlos. I just dug all those characters and could have... You know, as long as that movie is, could have watched them for another couple of hours probably and just <laughs> nice. been pleased as punch. Okay. And then perhaps because it made me so confused and uncomfortable, <laughs> the film that I will say I feel like I enjoyed the least while mm-hmm. in no way disliking it would probably be Band Apart, which is why it's going to have to be the one to get burned. All right. You're a gentleman and a scholar, Millsy. <laughs> what do you got? Far and away. Easy buy. Lady Snowblood. For all the reasons you said, um, it was just uh, a long-awaited payoff that was worth the wait. Is probably the best way I could put it. Mm-hmm. Already bought and yeah. paid for. Already bought and paid for. I mean, look at that. Art imitates life. Life imitates art. Now, like I said, three movies I enjoyed. Not easy choices for my borrow and my burn because they're i mean you could you pick two vastly more different movies <laughs> no, than no you could not. so enjoyed them both have like minor-ish gripes i guess about both and then highly enjoyed more than i disliked but i would say if i broke it down to like the most buttery essence of triple threat theater I would say I would be far more likely to rewatch Band Apart than Rio Bravo. Mm. So Band Apart gets my my borrow. Unfortunately, something's got to get burned, so it's Rio Bravo. But it was a pleasurable experience. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, just I don't I don't even know if I would ever have an itch that something like Band Apart's going to scratch. But for as aloof and kind of sideways out there as that movie is i just really enjoyed it and i it had me guessing the whole time it had me smiling and cringing and it's just one of those like completely unexpected movie experiences that in under different circumstances that could have been a buy too if it wasn't if lady snowblood wasn't so good Mm -hmm. but i just did have you know it looked great um, you know, every once in a while, I really like love watching me a black and white movie. So I like I was like very glad to watch Band Apart and was like excited to be like, you know, I actually own this one, too. So <laughs> now yeah. it's there. Uh, so you have no excuse not to rewatch the dance scene and learn the moves. Yeah. I was busy. I wasn't kidding. <laughs> so just remember that. <laughs> well, there we go. Right on. Bye, Barbara Brown. All right. Well. Time to find out what's up on the chopping block next. Mm. Let's see how many episodes we got, baby. We are at the nice round number of 225. Okay, here we go. Had a couple additions to the list recently. 225, we have 22. Ooh, low number, Millsy, low number. Early. 22 is going to be shorties. Okay. (laughs) Okay. 
shorties. I love this title. Shorties. <laughs> Best part about it is I'm not sure who came up with that title for this episode. Nope, not even. I would have I would have been sure this was a trifecta. I think under zero circumstances would I have ever said we named it Shorties. <laughs> Yeah, it seems so unusual that I want to say it was you, but I can't say that with any certainty. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> the unusual one, I like it. I, I don't know. That. Let's roll with yeah. it. Hey, man, that's how it goes here on Triple Threat. Yeah. So uh, come back next time in a couple of weeks for uh, episode forty, which rhymes with shorties. Oh man, <laughs> it's like we planned it. <laughs> and until then. I am Ryan Miller. And I am Joe Daxberger. Thanks for watching. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy, happy, happy. happy.